You're listening to This Old Tree, the show about heritage trees and the human stories behind them. I'm Doug Still. Luna is a 200-foot-tall redwood tree that stands like a tower on a ridge deep in a privately owned forest in Northern California. Her bark is two feet thick, and she has a gnarly, multi-pronged top that speaks of maturity and complexity. Luna is known as a she, that's just the way it happened. Except for an occasional ground fire, she'd lived in peace for over a thousand years. But the 1990s brought a rapid change. The trees around Luna began falling, almost all of them. Logging had occurred before, but not like this. The sound of chainsaws, helicopters, and crashing trees filled the air. But soon after the men in orange hard hats came to Luna's Ridge, other people followed. Instead of carrying saws, they carried backpacks, tools, and ropes. They climbed Luna, built a platform, and sat in her branches. They often came at night under the moonlight. One of them ended up staying in the top of the tree for two whole years. A blip in Luna's lifespan, but a crucial one the loggers went away. You may remember hearing about the remarkable Julia Butterfly Hill, her two-year tree sit, and the activist efforts of Earth First to save this wonderful tree and shed light on the indiscriminate clear-cutting of redwood forests. But soon after an agreement to save the tree was reached and the national news cleared out, another crisis arose that threatened Luna's existence. It brought in new heroes and ushered in a new era of collaboration. Stuart Moskowitz of the nonprofit Sanctuary Forest joins me today to tell this whole story and describe his own special relationship with Luna, along with guest Dennis Iniges, a consulting arborist who was part of the team that saved Luna a second time. I'm your host, Doug Still, and welcome to This Old Tree. This old tree, standing here for more than four centuries. Wonder what you'd say if you could talk to me about what it's like to be this old tree. Stuart Moskowitz is a board member of Sanctuary Forest, a nonprofit land and water trust in Humboldt County, California. Its mission is to work with surrounding communities to conserve and restore forests and watersheds, and they provide educational opportunities such as public hikes, scholarships, and holding public meetings. Since 1999, Stewart has been the lead monitor of the Luna Covenant, an agreement made between the Pacific Lumber Company and Julia Butterfly Hill to preserve this magnificent redwood tree and the conservation easement created around it. For 23 years, Stewart has been balancing his career teaching mathematics at Cal Poly Humboldt State University and caring for Luna. Stewart, a warm welcome to you. Thank you, Doug. I appreciate you putting these podcasts together very much. Thank you for including Luna. Before we get into Luna's story, I was hoping you could describe her for our listeners. You've made the trek through the forest to visit the tree probably hundreds of times. Could you tell us what you see when you arrive? What does it feel like to stand below her? Could you take us there with a description? Well, Luna is deep inside private land holdings, um, currently owned by the Humboldt Redwood Company. Um, To get to Luna, because of the 
agreement that was made. Sanctuary Forest has the right to go and monitor Luna at any time. And so I will notify the Humboldt Redwood Company that I'm going to go to Luna. Um, I have a key that will that I can open a gate and then we drive about 20 minutes. Now, of course, when Julia was sitting in the tree, her ground support team had to do all of this discreetly because they were trespassing. But now we have permission. So we drive about 15, 20 minutes up up the mountain. We then have to hike another 15, 20 minutes, about oh, three quarters of a mile from the end of the road. Um, we walk across the top of a very dramatic mudslide that was part of the reason that um, Luna was chosen for a tree sit. And then we get to a grove that has not been touched for 23 years because it's part of the protected zone. Um, so Luna is surrounded by lush new growth. There are a few other big trees, but not very many. And so when you get there, what what do you see? What do you smell? What do you hear? It's a very quiet place. It's a very damp place. There's very little sunshine that, that reaches the base of Luna. Um, it's a rather protected little spot when you get there. Luna has two big goose pens, which are big burnt out cavities that are they're called goose pens because in old days, occasionally uh, someone might put a fence across the entrance to this cavity and could keep their livestock in, inside it. Um, and often the first thing I will do is take off my pack and just climb inside this goose pen and sit down with my back against Luna and just sit there quietly. What are the tree's dimensions? Luna stands about approximately 200 feet tall, and her diameter is probably about 12 feet across, which gives her a circumference of close to 40 feet. Um, because it's so steep, um, you know, when you're on the uphill side, you're up above that flare. But even when you're up 10 feet higher than the downhill side, the girth is quite dramatic. Now, of course, the largest redwoods can be can be 20 to 25 feet in diameter with with occasionally circumferences that are 70, 80 and even even more. Um, so Luna is not the tallest. The tallest ones are 380 feet. So Luna is not the tallest and it's not the biggest, um, but it's definitely the biggest up on this particular ridge. Yeah, it must be pretty impressive when you're coming up the hill to look up just, you know, the exaggerated height from that view. Well, it was more dramatic 20 years ago when we started doing it, when there was all these fresh clear cuts that they had been logging. And there hasn't been much logging on that hillside. So a lot of it has grown up and we don't get to see Luna much anymore from a distance. That's a good thing, it sounds like. We can still find Luna from way down below or down in the valley. I can still look up on the ridge and pick out Luna from, from a distance. But I don't like to point it out too much because no. we still know that there are people that are happy with Luna being a protected tree up there. And we'll get into that story here in just a little bit. But that protection from other trees, from wind and just the elements, I think is, you know, that's positive development. Um, absolutely. 
Absolutely. And the winds have been documented. When Julia was up in Luna, winds are recorded as high as 90 miles an hour. Wow. So, yeah, that buffer zone of other trees is critical. How old is Luna and how do we estimate that? The estimate is about a thousand years old. Um, the only way to definitively tell the age of a tree is to um, use an increment borer, um, which is a tool that you will, it, it, it basically, you, you screw this, this tool into the tree and you remove a very small cylindrical bit of wood and you can count the rings on the it's drilling the tree. But it's actually drilling the tree. They say it doesn't damage the tree. But that's always questionable. Luna has never been bored. One thing that I have learned from the biologists and the arborists that have assisted us is that a redwood tree doesn't get its distinctive old growth look for at least 500 years or more. When a big, big redwood tree still has a shape like a Christmas tree, the, the symmetry of, 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 of what many people imagine in a, in a big conifer, that typically means a younger tree. It can take hundreds of years for the asymmetry to exist where, the, where a redwood will have multiple tops. There will be damage to the top and then other tops will come up. Some of the oldest and biggest Redwoods will have 30 or 40 or 50 tops. So again, a big asymmetrical look. And Luna has very, very distinctly stands out when you can get back away from that ridge and look on that ridge. Luna really is the only one with that asymmetrical top. So there's not many old growth trees left up on that ridge anymore. Where does the tree exist in relation to the headwaters grove? And what type of forest surrounds the tree? So, as I said, Luna is deep in private holdings. The Humboldt Redwood Company is the current owner. It's about 250 miles north of the Golden Gate Bridge. And the, the Humboldt Redwood Company owns about 200,000 acres of land. So that covers many hundreds of square miles of land. Um, the Headwaters Forest was 25 years ago the largest intact old growth stand that was still in private hands. And that made the Headwaters Grove a target and a goal of activists to get it protected. It's probably as the crow flies only about 10 or 15 miles away from where Luna sits on another ridge. As I said, Luna is not sitting in an old growth forest. Luna was probably left behind the first time the loggers came through because of her asymmetries. Luna has two tops and is not as pristine as what the loggers might want. So it possibly got left behind for that reason. So Luna sits way up high on a ridge and it's surrounded by cutover redwood and Douglas fir coniferous forest. So when they're logging this area, they're using both Douglas fir and the redwoods, right? Correct. What do they use redwood lumber for? Redwood lumber is known for being incredibly disease resistant, incredibly um, fire resistant. 
And so red, as far as my understanding, I think is that redwood is the only wood in California where building codes allow, you know, it's the only wood that can be in contact with the earth, that can be in contact with dirt because of its resistance to rot. So redwood is very valuable in that regard. It's got, and it's got a beautiful color. Historically, in the late 1800s, they thought of it as a, a, um, as a resource that would never be depleted. So many of the oldest houses around here are built from the ground up with redwood or completely framed with redwood. I wonder if its ability to withstand rot is one reason why redwoods live so long. I'm sure that has must have a lot to do with it. Yeah. And the bark can be the bark can be two feet thick. And that can withstand fire, you know, tremendously. Of course, it's not perfect. And that's why these burn scars, you know, why you do see burn scars. Depends on how severe the fire is. Of course. Yeah. Of course. And the longer we go suppressing fire, you know, I mean, that's been, a, there's been a lot of news lately about the size of the fires in California, because when the fires get, when, when the, fuel on the ground builds up and there's a lot more fuel to burn on the ground that makes the fires that much hotter but also because we are in a coastal zone um we haven't gotten those large fires that have burned through california in these last few years pretty much have, have not you know affected us as much here on the coastal plateau what kind of wildlife do you see living on the tree or near the tree Certainly, there are deer, there are black bear, there is mountain lion. They're the largest animals that are in those woods. We have, we also have elk that that are in these in these forests and on the on the uh, prairies. Fox, squirrels, chipmunks. We have martens. We have you know um, um, raccoons. That they're all around, but don't see them very much. What is quite remarkable is that 200 feet up in the air, Julia wrote about seeing animals up at the top of the tree that we would only expect to see on the ground. And, you know, you don't expect to see um, ground squirrels up, you know, up up high in the air and certain amphibians that w- would be there. But that's something that has been studied in recent years, that redwood canopies can have their own entire ecosystem all in one tree. Who are the indigenous peoples that were here before people of European descent? The land that Luna sits on was historically the Matol people. The um, the Matol watershed, the Matol River, is it, it runs close by. But I have to say that this part of California, this part of the Pacific Northwest, has more tribes than any other part of the continent, and so there's a lot of overlap. So if you look at a map, you'll see the Matol, you know, right there where Luna sits. But the Wiat people, the Wailaki people, the Yurok's, I mean, there was many tribes that would, you know, would, would and, and they would, would work together and interact through there. So um, working up to the time of the tree sit, um, which was 1997, who owned the land there? And had it been logged much prior to that? The Pacific Lumber Company goes back to the late 1800s. It was one family, and I'm trying to I'm trying to remind myself of the name of that. It was the Murphy family that owned it in the late 1800s. They were the ones that built up the vast 
you know, acreage that they had, and they logged it, I will say sustainably, they logged it hmm. at a rate where they probably could have kept logging it perhaps forever with 200,000 acres. And then in the 1980s, they went public. I, maybe it was in the 1970s that they actually went public. And I'm and I want to mention um, the, the Last Stand by David Harris will tell this story quite well of how Wall Street took over the Redwoods. When Pacific Lumber Company went public, there were entrepreneurs elsewhere that saw a publicly owned company with a vast amount of real estate holdings. And so at the same time that the in the 1980s, when the junk bond disaster was happening and people like Michael Milken were using junk bonds to buy up um, tremendous amounts of, um, I'll, I'll say, various companies. There was the Maxam Corporation owned by Charles Hurwitz that saw this undervalued publicly owned company, and he started buying their stock. And as soon as he was able to get a majority share, he tripled the rate of cut that was happening on these forests. So we never saw large clear cuts before the 1980s. But then when Maxam took over and with a huge debt that they had incurred to, to in order to make the takeover happen, they had to increase the rate of cut and clear cut started showing up. And that's what started attracting activists and protesters to come to these, these forests, which is why you will often hear that the Redwoods were the sort of the center of the of the timber wars back in the 70s and 80s and 90s. You mentioned that mudslide. Was that in 1997 or 96, sort of right around there when they were clear-cutting the hillsides and the mountains? Yes, it was New Year's Day, 1997. Everything pointed that it was the rate of cut, it was the increased clear-cutting that caused this mudslide, which buried seven houses at the bottom of the mountain, right in full view of U.S. Highway 101. So it became a public relations nightmare for the Pacific Lumber Company having this, you know, this, this pile of mud right there by the right there by the highway. You know, it's not just the cutting of the trees that increases the risk of landslides. Probably it's the building of roads and landings that have even more impact on the integrity of the hillside. And that's when Luna and all her glory got noticed. That was New Year's Day, 1997. And yes, that's what, and they continued to log up on that hillside in the vicinity of the mudslide. And that's what attracted Earth First to target that hillside for a tree sit. And Luna was the largest tree. And so different activists took, they rotated sitting in Luna for several months in early, in early 1997. And it was towards the end of 1997 when Julia Hill, Julia Butterfly Hill, a young woman who was recovering from an automobile accident, 23 years old, and looking for something to change her, you know, she knew that that she, she felt a calling to come out to do something in the Redwood Forests. 
And she really didn't know much about it, but she attended a meeting that was, you know, that the sitters and the activists were holding. You know, they took a lot of planning and a lot of ground support in order to keep these tree sitters supplied. And they and no tree sitter ever stayed up for more than a couple of days at a time. Right. But that system was in place already. That's right. And I believe that the platform that was put 180 feet up in Luna um, and installed during the dark of night, which uh, which is where the name Luna came from, meaning moon, because the platform was built in the moonlight. Um, Julia volunteered to take a turn up at the top of Luna. Um, she had never climbed a tree before, but they showed her how to climb and she got herself up to the top. And I think what made Julia different from the other tree sitters is that she is articulate and could speak to the cause well. And once she started talking and people started listening, she stayed. Of course, never dreamed she would stay for two years. Sort of the assumption was that these tree sitters were dirty and grubby and filthy hippies, you know, that that were sort of the the dregs. I mean, you know, they they were not treated well, but Julia didn't fit that that stereotype at all. And because she was 200 foot up feet up in a tree, her voice, people paid more attention to her voice. And I have use the phrase that Luna became a, you know, acted sort of like a microphone and a receiver, you know, that be that I don't know if people would have listened to Julia. They certainly didn't listen to other activists on the ground, but the fact that she was risking her life 200 feet up and month after month after month got people to start listening to her. So Luna provided that platform. I remember the story from the late nineties on the East Coast. And I think when I mention it to most people, they they know about it and remember that. Would you say that it was one of the most successful environmental direct actions that has occurred? Yes. And it makes me think you're reminding me of my daughter saying to me, but dad, it's just one tree. What's the big deal, dad? You know, she saved one tree. But I think it's more, you know, what that one tree symbolized and and the fact that that one tree gave Julia a voice that was heard and continues, you know, Luna continues to be a symbol for that movement. When did you first hear about the tree sit and when did, how did you get involved initially? My first direct contact was on the one year anniversary of the tree sit. So it would have been November of 1998 that there was a rally held right there on the mudslide, right there where these houses were still buried. There was a, a rally that brought several hundred people. Um, there were celebrities that came. There were activists that were there. There was a lot of speaking. There was music. And then there was an invitation to collectively trespass and hike up the ridge to go visit Luna. So I hiked up the ridge with about 300 other people. Um, but I also was a relative, a new board member with the Sanctuary Forest Land Trust. And we had an attorney on our board at the time. His name is Herb Schwartz, 
who was part of the team that was doing the negotiating between Julia and the Pacific Lumber Company. Julia said she was going to stay in Luna until Pacific Lumber Company agreed not to cut Luna down. And she was going to stay there. So <laughs> as, as two years starts to come around and the company realizes that she means it, she's not coming down, I think the fact that they've got this young woman in her early 20s sitting 200 feet up in a tree on their land, um, risking her life, they finally said okay after two years that they would negotiate and let's get her down before she gets killed up there. So Herb was part of the team that drew up the agreement, that wrote the agreement that Julia and the Pacific Lumber Company signed to protect Luna. And a land tri- nonprofit land trust is required to be that third party to act as not so much an enforcer, but a monitor of this agreement. So Sanctuary Forest was invited to take on the role of being the primary monitor of this Luna easement, this Luna covenant that was created. And what are the contents of the agreement? Basically, on a map, they drew a 200-foot radius circle around Luna and said that nothing can be done inside this 200 feet. That 200 feet provided a buffer zone for any surrounding timber harvest activity that would be done, keep that activity away from Luna. It also gave Luna a place to fall and land in a protected area, you know, if and when Luna were to fall. So this document defines the land. It also defines who can access Luna. And essentially, only the Sanctuary Forest Monitors and Julia have the right to enter the property. And that was signed December of 99? 99, that's right. When Julia signed it, (laughs) fortunately, Herb Schwartz, the attorney, happened to be a certified notary. And so he climbed his first redwood tree to go and get her, you know, to witness Julia signing the document. And once, once she had Herb's notarized signature, then Julia came down to the ground after that. Then probably starting in January 2000, you started monitoring the tree. You're the lead monitor. Correct. Then you encountered a crisis. But then we had a crisis. We're going to take a short break. When we return, Stuart Moskowitz of Sanctuary Forest describes the direct threat to the life of Luna the Redwood following the famous tree sit. You're listening to This Old Tree. Thanksgiving weekend of of 2000, when we get um, one of our board members gets a phone call from one of the activists who had been part of Julia's ground team. And he had continued to go up to Luna on his own even after, even later. And he discovered fresh sawdust in a chainsaw cut in, you know, cut, you know, Luna had been cut with a chainsaw. And so he immediately called us. And that would have been, you know, we had an emergency board meeting on that Sunday after Thanksgiving. And Monday morning, uh, several board members 
And we had we had a county sheriff. We had a private investigator. I mean, a crime had been committed. There was this was a direct vandalism. Um, we went into the corporate offices of the Pacific Lumber Company to tell them that the, you know a crime had been committed, that the easement had been violated, and we needed to get up there right away to assess the damage. And so they. Um, you know, there, oh goodness, there must have been 15 or 20 of us that went up that day. Um, we had, we had foresters from the Pacific Lumber Company. We had our own foresters. We had the law enforcement. We also had some people in the California Department of Forestry as well. So we had the environmentalists and the loggers and the government agents all up there to assess the damage. And what was your response when you first saw the damage? It was horrifying. It was it was horrifying. It looked like they did not try to cut Luna down. They went half more than halfway around, but just did a horizontal cut. And if you're going to cut down a tree, you go in on one side and you will remove a wedge and then you'll come around on the back side to do a back cut you know, on the opposite side from the wedge. Well, no wedge was ever taken out. No back cut was ever put in. Um, so it wasn't about cutting down the tree. It was about killing the tree. It was about killing the tree. It was about killing the movement, we think, you know, about 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 hurting Julia and hurting the activists in an indirect way. So you put together, you and Sanctuary Forest put together a team to um, assess the damage and, you know, treat the tree. So we called Save the Redwoods League, which is based out of San Francisco, a four and a half hour drive south. We called Save the Redwoods League and said, explain to them what we had on our hands and asked them if they had any expert arborists that knew how to work on large redwood trees. And that night, the president of the American Society of Consulting Arborists and one of Save the Redwoods League leading arborist, his name is Dennis Inigas, um, left his Berkeley home and drove all night, Monday night, and showed up Tuesday morning and went with us to Luna Tuesday morning. This was not just girdling the tree. This was a plunge cut with a saw that uh, chainsaw that probably had a 36-inch bar. Here is Dennis Inigas today, the owner of Tree Decisions out of Berkeley, California. He's a registered consulting arborist, or RCA, of the American Society of Consulting Arborists, of which I'm also a member. What were your first thoughts after seeing the cut in person? Well, it was a huge cut. Um, A few of us showed up the next day on site, and we had a contractor's tape and snipped off the end of it so it would fit into a narrow saw kerf. And we could measure the depth of the cut, and it was about 32 inches deep. And Luna, at that height of the cut, which is, oh, I don't know, two and a half feet above the ground, Luna's 11 feet thick. And the cut was about 60% of the way through the cross-section of the tree. And there were two cavities in Luna, an uphill and a downhill cavity, before the cut was made. Right. It's very common for these old-growth trees uh, to have openings in them they're fire resistant but sometimes a very intense fire at their base will manage to get through the bark and burn the tree and luna had two cavities that are significant you can stand inside both of them so somebody had apparently done a plunge cut right in the middle of the tree and just 
just went from left to right as far as they could around the tree without felling it. They cut enough so that the saw kerf was facing the direction of prevailing winds. And the next big storm would have had a 200-foot lever or whatever it is, 180 to 210 feet, whatever the height is or was at that time. And it would have had a huge leverage uh, to push over Luna. The percentage, circumferential percentage of living cambium from the roots to the crown was probably about 25%. Could you explain for our listeners what the tree's cambium layer is and why it's so vital? It's absolutely vital. The, the cambium is like an envelope or a sheath around the circumference of the tree beneath the bark. And it's living cells that are meristematic meaning they can produce several different kinds of cells and they produce cells on the outside called the phloem and the phloem distributes the carbohydrates, the sugars that are made by the needles of the tree in photosynthesis. And on the inside of the cambium, it produces xylem, which is the wood of the tree that conducts water and minerals, dissolved minerals in an upward flow from the roots to the top of the tree. It's absolutely essential. It's the living part of the tree. The middle of a huge tree like that is mostly non-living tissue. Yeah, I think of it like a cylinder just below the bark. Thank you. In one sentence, you've said it. And they had cut through the bark and through the cambium layer. Oh, yeah. And it was severed from top to bottom. So the structural stability was gone in 60% of that tree. Had you worked with redwood trees before? And what makes them challenging? Oh, redwood trees are, yes, I've worked with them before and quite a bit. Redwood trees are amazing. They are one of the most resilient trees that I've ever heard about or worked with. They have the ability to uptake moisture in a way, it's called interlocked sap ascent. And Water from all around the tree arises in a zigzag pattern beneath the bark, so that by the time the water is only about 10 feet above ground, it may well have gone almost all the way around to the other side of the tree. So water is raised in a diffuse pattern. There's Hmm. no one-to-one relationship between a severed root and the branches above that root. Oh, interesting. Yeah, so redwoods can nourish the entire crown and uptake moisture and distribute it in a diffuse manner, which is a huge survival tactic. They also can do direct foliar absorption of water from the fog. They can take it right out of the fog, right through specialized needles. And they also have leaves that do what's called gutation, which means drip, fog drip, And a lot of that is taken up again by the roots. They can pull the water either directly from the fog, they can have fog drip, and then it comes up through the roots. So this direct foliar absorption is one thing that probably had a lot to do with Luna being able to withstand. I was going to ask, is that (laughs) sort of diffuse um, water absorption system or distribution system helped the tree in this case, didn't it? Oh, yeah. I mean, it must have. And also, redwoods have a a habit, which they've evolved over 150 million years, to 
be grafted to neighboring trees. And so it is entirely possible that other redwoods around Luna were connected to the surviving root system of Luna. And we don't know, but the trees around Luna may have been playing a part in assisting Luna's survival. Right. Although a lot of the trees had been removed through the logging, but there were some left. Oh, definitely. So you were concerned about the tree stability of the prevailing winds. And so you prescribed installing brackets. Yes. I I don't want to take all the credit for that. We had a team of people. And I'll tell you, there was a state forester that was working with Pacific Lumber Company, the the company that uh, Julia was protesting against. And there was a private forester also who was called to be on on the team to go up and inspect the damage. And there were a few other folks too. Um, There was an engineer from Arcata. And the brackets that went on the tree are made of half inch thick plate steel. And I think the bolts that are used from top to bottom above and below the cut are one inch thick possibly thicker, possibly one and a quarter, I don't remember. And there are five pairs of brackets uh, on the area that was cut. We went out after Pacific Lumber Company had kept four of their machinists working overtime to build these brackets. The same day they were designed, they were built. And we hiked in about six o'clock that night And some people went in by truck, some hiked in and carried in the brackets and carried in some of the gear. And Pacific Lumber Company had designated a driver to park on a landing on a flat above Luna where some of the logging trucks had been. And they went up on a logging road and took in a generator and hundreds of feet of electric cable and ran about 300 feet of cable down from a generator down to Luna. So a team of about, I think there were six or seven of us worked, oh, for something over four hours. We had Klieg lights and uh, powerful drills and lag bolts and the brackets and were able to put those in the tree before the storm came. And the storm broke that night at 1145 or so. We were finished. We were walking up and out of the hill and back to some vehicles and the storm broke And nobody knew if Luna was going to make it. Sounds like quite a team. But it was great. And one of the people on the team was from Pacific Lumber. So this event brought everybody together to work and try to make sure the street didn't go over. Ironically, the cut heightened the cooperation between all parties. It led to heightened cooperation. And if anything, I think the cut probably had the exact opposite effect of what the intent of the cut was. Instead of to demoralize the movement, it actually energized the movement. It was an it was an adventure, I'll tell you, because we forgot what's called a splitter when we walked down. A splitter is a device that can take the electrical current from a cable and it goes into a Y so that you can put two devices on the cable and have them be powered with electricity. So we had to choose between the drill and the lights. <laughs> so we'd light up the tree and place the drill and then we turn off the lights and plug in the drill. And we kind of did that. A few people had flashlights, but it was an adventure. Great fun. Great team. I should tell you, the brackets are not the only thing holding Luna up. So in addition to the brackets, 
there was also a cabling system installed. Could you describe that? Sure. So the brackets were put up on Tuesday, you know, I'm installed by Tuesday night, but we knew that those brackets, which were bolted into Luna, you know, right at the base, we didn't, nobody really expected that to hold up over time. So at that point, you know, with the news out of what was going on, I started getting emails and phone calls from arborists, from engineers, from biologists, from chemists, um, from around the world, architects telling us what we had to do to save Luna, sending us these diagrams with these cabling systems. You know, we got to put some guy wires up on Luna up high, you know, and tether her, uh, you know, all different kinds of ways to do it. It was Tuesday that those brackets were put in place. Julia was out of state when it all happened. She came back to Humboldt County and on Wednesday came with us up to Luna. Very, very emotional trip up to Luna for Julia. Sure. And then had a press conference back in Eureka that afternoon to explain to the world what had happened. And I remember at that press conference that a man came up to me, introduced himself. My His name is Steve Salzman, and he's an engineer, and he wants to help in any way he can. An engineer, Steve Salzman, uh, designed a cable system along with uh, Steve Sillett, who's a humble professor, and Jim Spickler, who was a colleague and is now doing a, a lot of work up in Humboldt County and actually different places around the world. They designed a cable system and anchored it at about 100 or 110 feet with three cables that are anchored into the base of other smaller redwoods in in specific locations around the tree. And they went up. I was not with them when they went up to put the half-inch cable around the tree. As you know, uh, as an arborist, you, you can't girdle a tree with, with cables, and the tree will continue to have radial growth, and it'll end up choking itself off. So they used vertical wooden slats, and they wrapped a cable about four times around these vertical slats, and that prevented the cambium from being uh, fully compressed. And it's a technique that they've used in ecoforestry. And there's a gentleman named Paul Donahue and his wife, uh, Teresa Wood, who came up with that idea. And with Steve Sillett and Jim Spickler, they managed to install this uh, anchorage point up at 100 feet. And the way they ran a line from that anchor point was to use crossbows and shoot lines down. Uh, Steve Salzman was the engineer who went out and identified the base of the trees that they'd be anchored to. Then they'd shoot a, a line with a crossbow down from that anchor point so they'd get a straight cable run when it was time to pull the cables up. How has the tree responded to the brackets and the cabling system? Is the bark growing around the brackets or have adjustments been made? Oh, it's doing great. You know, Luna is amazing. It was pretty sketchy for a while. I mean, for the first year, year and a half, Luna looked pretty good. And then we knew that there would be dieback in the top, regardless of all its resilience and survival mechanisms. That's a huge, a huge blow to the system to have 60% of the cross section completely severed. So uh, over time now, Luna has 
closed off a lot of the kerf that was cut and has built what looked like huge burls over the over some of the area of the cuts and it's kind of holding steady on top it has oh i i don't want to put a percentage on it because i really don't know but maybe 15% dieback overall mm-hmm. on the top of the tree but luna's making it we all knew luna would make it it's amazing. I, I don't know of it ever happening before. I've, I don't know of a situation like this. The redwood tree received the immediate technical attention it needed, but Luna was also offered some unexpected spiritual healing as well. Coming up after the break, this is This Old Tree. Cherokee bear medicine healer Byron Jordan, and what did he propose? So the brackets got put in place first, and then the cable system took another two months, and that took care of the structural first aid for Luna. But we still had biological first aid and emotional and spiritual first aid, as many you know, as everybody around was wanting to 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 approach this from a uh, you know from all these different angles. And I, I had all of this advice from people about how to heal Luna, you know, from the biologists, from the chemists, from the herbalists. And Julia said, whatever you do, she said, you know, I'm, she said, I'm not invested in the, the specifics, but please, whatever you do for Luna, make sure it comes from the earth. Nothing synthetic. It was important to Julia to really try to find a way to use a balm or use some kind of poultice or some solution on the tree where the cuts were made. And that was her intuitive feeling. And I can't begin to speak about the depth of her connection with the tree after living with a single tree for two years up in the canopy. But when she has an intuitive feeling about what's right for the tree. I I just really want to listen to what her feeling is about it and to respect that. And she gave me the name of Byron Jordan, a Cherokee bear medicine healer, earth medicine healer. He lived in Cambridge, Massachusetts at the time. And so she gave me Byron's phone number. Byron had reached out to Julia and offered his help. And then, you know, if he could be helpful, he wanted to help. And so Julia gave me his phone number and we had some very interesting phone calls where he explained to me that the best thing to put into this cut would be clay from a source as close as we could get to Luna. He said, clay is a natural healing agent. He said, clay has been packed on wounds by indigenous people since time immemorial. Um, he said, Jesus healed a blind man with clay. He said, he's, you know, and so if you can pack that with clay, that's what you should do. And then Byron also offered, he said, the only thing better than clay is bear saliva. He said, bear, he said, saliva, also powerful healing agent. He said, all 
no matter the species, you know, animals will lick their wounds to clean themselves. He said that bear, he said, there's probably a bear up there licking that cut right now, he said to me. He says, you know, so if you can get some bear saliva to mix in with the clay, that would be perfect. He said, <laughs> he said, but it's, and I was sort of hesitating at that point. And he did offer, he said, it's, it's hard to get, he said. <laughs> I imagine so. So how are you going to get bear spit? Well, it turns out I wasn't up in Humboldt County when this discussion was going on about what to do. And they divided up the responsibilities into kind of a treasure hunt for who would come up with what what mixtures for this tree. And for some reason, I got nominated to get the bear spit. So uh, I, I don't know why. I got a call one evening, maybe nine o'clock, and uh, they said, we're going to do this poultice. And I, I happened to know the director of the zoo over in San Francisco, the director of the botanical part of the zoo. And I called him at 10 o'clock and said, Tom, can you get me any bear spit? And he, he didn't find that to be an unusual request because he had received a good number of requests for the urine of lions and tigers and all that. That so, wasn't the first type of request he received like that. Uh, uh, not really. He's well. I don't know if it was the first one for bear spit, but they get unusual requests from people who want to keep deer out of their yard and all that. They want the urine of predators. So anyway, um, he said, "Well, we don't have any black bears here at the zoo, but I know where you can locate a black bear." And it turns out there was a black bear named Rosemary who was had been orphaned in a fire. And she was in the zoo up in in Humboldt County. And so I wasn't there, but I heard that a small team of people went to uh, visit Rosemary and they brought chocolate chip cookies and celery and they fed her chocolate chip cookies, reached through the cage bars, fed her chocolate chip cookies. And then she starts salivating and they put a piece of celery in her mouth. And then they were able to withdraw some bear spit. And that was mixed in with the clay. And it sounds out of this world. It sounds um, so I'd foreign. I'd spit out the celery after having chocolate chip cookies, too. <laughs> sure. I think part of the whole mystique of this whole story is that I'm a mathematics professor. You know, taking care of a tree, especially like this, is not part of my training. <laughs> I'm a scientist, you know, and here I am using bear saliva and clay to heal a tree. You know, how did, how did this all happen? And one side of me says, Stuart, you don't believe any of this, but then it's happening. You know, it's happening, you know, and I'm in the middle of it. What is the essence of Luna? <laughs> so one of the things that Julia did over the course of the two years um, was she made a tincture. And she, while she was 200 feet up, she collected bark and lichens and various little plants and sticks and, and that she, and she, and she steeped it in a, and made a tea out of it. And she made a, base for what she eventually called the essence of Luna. And she gave me a little, a little, a little bottle with a dropper and asked me to give some of this back to Luna every time I visit Luna. 
Um, it's sort of similar to other homeopathic remedies where, you know, um, I don't know if, if you or any of the listeners are familiar with the Bach flower remedies, um, that the rescue remedy is something, you know, it reminded me a lot of rescue remedy that to give back after a trauma. You are quoted in one of the sanctuary forest reports as saying, Luna is responding with the wisdom of more than a hundred million years of evolution in order to regain her balance. So as an expert, how does it help to be humble? Oh my God. I, I don't know much about humility. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's a constant effort. It's a constant effort. Everybody has a tendency to want to elevate themselves. Well, it sounds I, I, like I, you, you were responding to the people who had an emotional attachment and emotional investment in this tree. And you are also responding to the tree itself and your knowledge of, you know, your knowledge of the species. You know, it was a great gift to be able to be involved in this project. And what's so beautiful about it is that it really brought people together. And it's been almost 23 years since uh, Julia came down from the tree and uh, our politics have gotten more divisive and a lot has happened in the world. And it's easy to see the kind of lower nature that sometimes comes out in folks and to see the best in people come together for a really great purpose. Uh, that was inspiring. You've, you've heard from Stuart, who is the guardian angel of Luna. He's been rock solid for 23 years going up regularly to Luna. And it's just um, uh, amazing how the, the love of Luna and the love and appreciation of Julia continues after all this time. The story of Luna is so well known that um, Luna is sort of like a tree celebrity in a way. People yeah. know that name, they know the tree, they know the story, or a lot of people do. And you spoke about the power of that, but are there any drawbacks to that sometimes? And what's the balance between sharing Luna with the public and protecting the tree? Well, the timber wars, many of the loggers, much of the timber industry blames the environmentalists for not being able to log trees the way they used to. And so, yes, we're very protective about keeping Luna's location a secret. And one of the things I, again, appreciate about Sanctuary Forest is that we're not like Earth First. We don't take direct action. We are not out there sitting in trees or blocking roads or vandalizing equipment. Um, we believe, you know, and we don't believe that logging should stop. We, we recognize that, you know, that lumber is a very important, you know, is an important building material and, and that's not going away. And so we take an approach of working, trying to work cooperatively, trying to work side by side to come to some agreement. And that's one reason why I really appreciate that we've been able to develop this relationship with Pacific Lumber Company, and now even more so with the Humboldt Redwood Company. Do you think Luna could live another thousand years? Redwoods don't die of old age. I think we've come to realize that, that they can live on and on and on 
And so with that in mind, I would say yes. And the, and what Luna has demonstrated, you know, in some ways, Luna has become an outdoor laboratory, you know, because it's not often that you can study, you know, something that's been vandalized like this, that's been cut like this. And she's demonstrated how strong she is, that she can keep going. There's clearly a bond between you and Luna that is unique and special. And I'm sure Julia and any of the other people who've cared for Luna um, and been a part of the story have similar experiences, but in their own way. And I bet some of our listeners today are thinking right now about a tree in their lives that means something special to them on an emotional level. And I put myself among them. Are we eccentric, normal, or somewhere in between? (laughs) Oh, wow. Um, How about all of the above? (laughs) You know, like I said, you know, my background, you know, I'm, I'm trained as a mathematician, as a scientist. This is not what I was raised to believe in. But these last 23 years of my life, um, I've been exposed and I have experienced things that I never dreamed I would have ever experienced. Is it eccentric? Probably a little bit. Yes, probably, probably some. Um, but it's real. It's happening. You're right. I have become attached to this tree partially because of Luna herself. And, you know, it's just, oh, my goodness, there it feels so comforting to be there, you know, to sit in one of these goose pens and lean back against Luna. There's just, it's, it's a very special feeling, but Luna has enriched my life. The people that I have met over the years, you included, Doug, you know, I mean, the people that have interviewed me, the people that I have taken to Luna, the seeing such diverse perspectives come together to work side by side. In that regard, there's no way to discount the effect that Luna has had. Thanks so much. I really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you for coming on the show. Thank you for doing this, Doug. You know, I appreciate because this is part of what keeps the story alive. So I'm delighted that, you know, here we'll have another opportunity to, to share the story. I hope you've enjoyed hearing the story about Luna the Redwood Tree, especially from the perspective of Stuart Moskowitz, the lead monitor of the Luna Covenant from Sanctuary Forest. It took a special person in Julia Butterfly Hill to sit in Luna's crown for two years and a dedicated crew of supporters to help. But it's just as meaningful for someone to devote 23 years to taking care of this beautiful redwood and what she symbolizes. You can donate to Sanctuary Forest and help them continue to do all the good work that they're doing by going to their website at sanctuaryforest.org. Thanks again to Stuart, and much appreciation to Dennis Inigas for coming on the show to share his expertise and experience in this wonderful story. And thank you, tree lovers, for joining me today. To see photos of Luna and the other trees we talk about on this show, find us on Facebook, Instagram, and the website thisoldtree.show. I'm Doug Still, and you've been listening to This Old Tree. See you next time. This old tree Standing here for more than four centuries Wonder what you'd say if you could talk to me about what it's like to be this old tree shadow and shade 
Kids down the block are selling lemonade Send them down a cool breeze, a sweet cascade Taylor made by this old